This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we continue our series on images we find in the desert. We will see God's continual use of the desert to minister to us and to teach us how to minister to others. We've got a few more images uh, we reviewed last time, so let's just jump into the images. We've got a few more images to get acquainted with the desert, and um, one of the things that... uh, There's one image, in fact, I'm not even going to share. I'm going to reserve it alone for people that get to come on the trip. It's always one of the most meaningful lessons. Um, You can actually uh, bump into it. If you look at that DVD, I think two podcasts ago, we uh, referenced from Ray Vanderlaan about his desert videos. Uh, He does have a very similar lesson to the one that I share that I uh, received from him. Um, But I'm not going to do it in the podcast. I'm going to leave it. There's got to be something. There's got to be some incentive for uh, paying, you know, five six thousand dollars. Can you over. even say what the image is? You know, it, would, it has to do with rocks. I'll put it that way. Okay, there's lots right. of rocks over there, right? Um, yeah, yeah. There's lots of rocks. <laughs> there's over a there. couple of rocks. So we're gonna talk about rocks, or we're not gonna talk about rocks. People always like to bring us. them back to the states. So I'm sure if you want to see one there of those rocks, you can find somebody. Yeah, got a couple. Yep, and they'll probably tell you the story. Um, but yeah, so I'm gonna save one of those images. But we got three images I want to talk about today. Um. First one, I want to talk about a site in the desert. One of the most shocking things I ran into in the desert um, was what I didn't have, <laughs> and that was sight. Uh, when I pictured the desert in the Bible, I pictured like the you know the sand dunes, Lawrence of Arabia type, like long desert, sea for miles, sandy dunes, wind blowing. Uh, so not what what I experienced when I went over to the Holy Land. Um, those deserts can exist if you get far enough south and far enough east, if you get into Arabia. Um, but the deserts of the Bible, uh, you have the Negev, you have the Paran, and you have the Sin Desert. Uh, and these three deserts are, uh, they're different. They're also incredibly unique. None of them really end up becoming these sandy, duny deserts that we picture in our in our mind with camels on the horizon. Uh, the deserts of the Bible are, um, they're full of what's called wadis. We're going to talk about wadis more here uh, towards the end of the podcast. But a wadi, W-A-D-I, wadi is a, a deep desert canyon that's carved out by the rainfall. So the rain in this region is not much at all, but it will rain for two months out of the year. Uh, that will be the rainy season. It will u- usually rain not even in places like the Negev. It's going to rain uh, more in places like the Judean hills, uh, the Judah mountains. It will rain, but because of the fact that the area is so dry and um, the land is so dry, the rain just rushes and heads uh, east and south into the Rift Valley, uh, towards the Dead Sea, towards the valley there. And this rushing water over these thousands and thousands and thousands of years have cut these deep desert canyons where the water has flown. And so when you wander through the desert, you're really walking through the bottom of many, many different wadis. It's one of the reasons why it's so easy to get lost um, in the desert. And part of the reason it's easy to get lost, and I have I've been on the receiving end of my teacher and leader getting us lost, and I have been on the getting lost end. Uh, nothing too bad yet. I know we weren't lost. on, Well, at least I don't think we were lost, <laughs> but I felt like we were lost. Yeah, it sure feels like it. And you do begin to wonder. You wonder if the guy up front uh, knows, and 
And, uh, and yeah, you would never know if we actually got lost, hopefully, if I'm a good rabbi. But, um, yeah, we, we, you, you find yourselves in the bottom of these wadis. You can't see 50 yards in front of you. It's just rock wall and rock wall and a rock wall in front of you. And you look behind you and all you see is a rock wall. And you're just surrounded by desert. You're surrounded by rocks. You're surrounded by cliff face. You're surrounded by wadi. And you can't see where you're going. And so in your presentation, we've actually dropped some photos of our different times in the desert. And you'll notice, I don't know if that's what you picture when you picture desert, but it was not what I pictured. And again, what we go back to is we go back to what we learned with the very first desert lesson that we had with Shepherd, And that is that the desert teaches you how to follow voice because you don't know where you're headed. I can remember my very first trip in 2008 um, with Ray, and it was actually a trip. He actually did get us lost on this trip. Uh, and we had to walk like an extra, I believe it was an extra seven miles to get out of the wadi we were in. Um, and we were just wandering through the desert uh, but we had to learn to trust our guide. We had to learn how to trust our leader. We had no other option but to trust that he would get us where we were going. And every time you would turn a corner, and he, he kept saying this phrase, he kept saying, and I know another guy by the name of George DeYoung, he loves this phrase too. Let's see what's around the next bend. Let's see what God has for us. Uh, let's see what God's going to provide. Let's see what the Lord provides around the next bend. You never know what lies around the next bend. And so every time now and then you would crawl, you would round the bend and sometimes you'd see more desert. Sometimes you'd see a rotem bush. Sometimes you'd see something that was going to give you a little bit of rest or a little bit of shade. Uh, sometimes you would just see more rocks and more desert. But the desert teaches you to trust because you cannot plan. You have no eyesight. You can't see beyond the next 50 yards. Um, the desert teaches you how to be a people with, uh, that, that are content with just enough. What I know is where to put my, my foot in the next step. I know where the next step's going to be. Um, I know where I'm going to be in the next 30 seconds. I don't know where I'm going to be in 30 minutes. I have no idea. Can't see that far. Um, but I know that I'm okay right now. And I trust my shepherd. I trust the person who's leading with their voice, and I'm just going to follow. I'm going to follow where they lead and believe that they have uh, their best interest in mind. You learn this in the desert. It's where I love to open my trips. And uh, tell me about your experience with my itinerary, Brent, when you came with me to Israel. Well, we jumped right in Yeah, to the desert, um, wandered around. We got to experience the rocks and, yeah. and the barrenness, yeah. the utter... Uh, Utter lifelessness. <laughs> what about the paperwork of the itinerary? How did you feel about that? What did I give you there? The paperwork? Yeah. You know, I, I gave you a little itinerary there to tell you where we were going to be and where we were going. Oh, I don't really remember. <laughs> you don't remember because there really wasn't one. Like we had this rough itinerary with like emergency numbers on it, but I would not tell anybody where we were headed for the day. It's part of the experience of the trip. You never knew where we were headed. Right. And part of the reason why we jump right into it in the desert is that's the best place to learn this principle. Like, and people freak out. They're like, where are we going today? I don't know. I'm not going to tell you. I know, I know where we're going, but you're not going to know where we're going. That's not okay. And we get to learn this lesson of if that's how we approach our relationship with God, we have ourselves in all kinds of trouble and problems because um, we have to learn to trust that God knows where we're headed. God knows where this is going. We like to think we know where we're going, uh, but we really don't. And so one of the things I love to do in the desert is not tell, I don't know, I'm, I'm not going to tell you where we're headed. We might be out here all day. We might be camping out here tonight. Who knows? But you got to trust me. You got to trust that I know where I'm headed. Well, what, what kept me going is knowing that 
you as my teacher or leader, you knew about shade. And I was like, he, like, I need shade. Mm-hmm. And I know that Marty knows about it. So he's got to be taking me to it. Yes. I don't know when it's going to be here, but I know yeah. he'll get it to yep. me at some point. A hard, hard lesson to learn for us Americans, especially people like me who are control freaks. Uh, I do very bad as a participant on these trips. I do really good as the leader on these trips because I know where I'm going. Uh, But when I was a participant, man, that was hard. That first trip just killed me. And I I knew I came back from that trip. I had to learn how to trust God. Um, And nothing has taught me that more in my own life than the metaphorical deserts, the spiritual deserts that I've had to live through. So uh, the next image that I want to talk about is the, the image of Maim Chaim, living water, Maim Chaim. And uh, it's at a place that we would visit. It's called Engedi. So we're going to talk about Engedi uh, as well. And um, if you're ever in the Negev and you, ha- you happen to wander upon Engedi, you'll know because it's a national nature preserve, which sounds ridiculous. Like... You mean there's a natural preserve in the middle of the Negev Desert? Yes. En Gedi means spring of the deer. It is um, it is uh, an oasis, a natural oasis where there is a spring that's coming out in the middle of the Negev. And this is something that happens in occasional places uh, all throughout the deserts of the Bible. Um, every now and then there will be this oasis in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I can remember when Ray took us on our trip. I've never been able to do this with my students, but... I can remember when I went uh, in 2008, Ray brought us in from the back. So we hiked for miles around the back of En Gedi, and there was no sign. I'm telling you, there's no sign that it's coming. There's no trees. There's no bushes. There's, it's just barren desert wasteland. And then all of a sudden, you, like right when you're on top of it, all of a sudden you hear the sound of water. And just steps later, all of a sudden you were on top of this waterfall. Um, and all of a sudden bushes and trees out of just literally nowhere in the bottom of this wadi. And, and you now have all of a sudden an oasis of, of life. Now I've been told, I don't know if this is, I have a hard time believing this, but I've been told that the ecosystem, uh, over there, that it takes somewhere between 1,800 and 2,000 years for the rain to fall, to work its way through the ecosystem, and to end up coming out of that spring. Uh, That portion of the Negev is actually fed by the region of Jerusalem, Bethlehem, that kind of region, uh, just to its north and and slightly to the the west. Um, And so what that would mean is the water coming out of that spring today somewhere fell in Bethlehem around the birth of Jesus. I don't know. That feels a little touristy, kind of gimmicky to me. But I don't know. I'm not an ecologist. I have no idea how the ecology system, the ecosystem works over there. But that's what I've been told. So I share that with you with an asterisk. I have a hard time believing it. But nevertheless... It does seem like an awfully long cycle. (laughs) It seems like an awfully long cycle and awfully convenient for all those tourists that want to come over and see the land of Jesus. (laughs) But who knows? I don't know. Uh, I asked somebody. I have had one one tour guide affirm it. I've had one tour guide tell me no, so who knows? Um, But I I hand that to you as an awkward, strange gift. Uh, But anyway, there's a psalm that I believe we have. Psalm 63? Yeah. Okay, go ahead and read me the first few verses. Actually, pay attention to the opening of this psalm. Listen to what it says here. A psalm of David. 
when he was in the desert of Judah. All right, so we have desert image. I doubt that any of us would have ever cared about the intro to that psalm. But here's David, and he's and we're told where he is because where he's at is very important to the psalm. He's in the midbar. He's in the wilderness. He's in the desert. Okay, go ahead. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. All right, so we have this thirst dry and parched land. God is our living water. Maim Chaim. Living water. Maim Chaim. God is. And so David now, and again, if you've been to the desert, that you can, you can now connect with that passage in a way you just couldn't before. Right, Brent? Absolutely. Yeah. Dry and parched, dying, like I am thirsty. Yeah, we can definitely connect to that verse in a unique way. Three or four hours in the in the wadi, we'll uh, do that to you. Absolutely, absolutely. So David calls out to God and he says, In the desert I have learned that you are my my, mchaim, my living water, my Engedi. God, you are my Engedi. But just like we did with the Rotom, just like we did with Acacia, just like we did with Shade, we see the Bible and the authors doing something very, very similar all throughout the scriptures to what we saw with shade, very similar principle. Not only is God our shade, not only is God our Engedi, our living water, our Maim Chaim, God is also going to ask us to be this for other people. So you have some more passages, don't you, Brent? Yeah, Jeremiah 2.13. All right, lay it on me. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. All right. So here God again refers to himself as the living water and says the problem with my people is they have on one hand living water. I love to teach this when we're standing there Um, because you have like living spring water coming out and God says, this is what I have to offer. But my people have went and dug cisterns now. I can't remember how many cisterns we got to see this summer, but cisterns are not. You don't go down to the cistern and think, yummy. It's this nasty water that's been sitting in this rock cistern. It's all tepid and just still and gross. And it's going to be what you need to live, but it's not like a a flowing stream, spring of water uh, coming out freshly from the cistern. And God says, here I am. And my people have chosen to go after cistern water, and they dig broken cisterns. They can't even hold water. So God continues to talk about it in, in a way that says he is the Maim Chaim. Uh, but what else? What other kind of passages do you got? Isaiah 32. All right. Ooh, we've read this one before. Let's review it. See, a king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Okay, so Isaiah is going to take this idea and he's going to push it uh, into this concept of it's not just the king that will reign in righteousness, but it's those rulers we talked about before. We will be streams of water in the desert. So it's not just that God is the stream of water, uh, the Maim Chaim, it's that we are supposed to be Maim Chaim for other people. Um, What else do you got? Uh, Isaiah 58, starting in verse 9. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. 
If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. All right. So in this passage, we see both. God says, you need to come to me and I'm going to refresh you. But at the same time, you're going to be a well-watered garden. You're going to be a spring whose waters never fail. So we watch this play back and forth of God's trying to teach us in the desert uh, how to trust him to be our provision. And in learning that through those tests in the desert, I'm supposed to learn how to turn around and be that same provision for other people in their deserts. So it's this continual call. Now, I keep talking about living water, Maim Chaim. What is that? Living water is going to come up throughout the story a little bit here and there. Living water, according to Jewish thought, had to be water that got there from God. It had to come by God's power. Living water comes from God. That means it can come in, the, in two forms. Brent, what would those be? Uh, so like a spring where it's coming okay. out of the ground. Coming out of the ground. Or rain that's falling. Rain from... that's falling. Those would be the two forms of water that come from God. Those are two forms of mein chaim. If you put it in a cistern, it's no longer living water because it got there on your account. If you put it in a bucket... It's no longer living water because now that water got there on your strength. Maim Chaim has to come from God, which means it has to come either from the earth or from the sky. So one of the other places that Maim Chaim showed up was in the festival of Sukkot. Now, the festival of Sukkot was a long, week-long celebration. It was called the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles. And it was an eight-day celebration where um, God's people got together at the temple and there were different sacrifices every single day. On the last and greatest day of the feast, there was what was called the water ceremony. We're told in the Gospel of John that Jesus actually goes to the water ceremony. Uh, he's there for the festival of Sukkot, for the Feast of Tabernacles. He shows up at the, at the temple and he has a teaching, but we need to understand the context of the teaching to understand what Jesus is getting at. At the water ceremony, um, everybody would have been gathered there, uh, and God had told the people to go up to the temple on Sukkot, uh, with what was called the lulav. Now, the lulav was uh, three branches and what was called a citron, uh, which is a citrus fruit. You have a citron, you have a myrtle branch, you have a palm frond, and you have a willow branch. And you tie all of these together, and they make what's called a lulav. You can actually look up lulav all over the internet. Um, one of my favorite sites is chabad.org, and you can actually find a... a a picture or instructions of even how to make a lulav. Um, but you take these lulavs and you take them up to the temple. Um, there's a wonderful rabbinic tradition about how they even discovered how to use these. Like they end up at the temple with all these palm fronds and God didn't tell them what to do with them. He just said, go to the temple with your lulav. Gave no other instructions. So they all show up to the temple with their lulav and there's this rabbinic story about a child who was shaking his palm frond and the rabbis went, ah. This palm frond, when you shake it, it sounds like rain. Everybody shake their palm fronds. And if you've ever been in a room, which this would be odd, but some of us might have been able to 
maybe some Palm Sunday where we all had palm fronds. Maybe you got to experience this. If you're ever in a room and you all get to shake your palm fronds all at once. I actually did this uh, for a service that we did in Twin Falls when I worked there. Uh, we had the opportunity to have everybody in the lobby. There was some 300 of us and we all had palm fronds. We all shook them and it sounds like it's raining. And they said, ah, well, we're here to celebrate the harvest. We must be here to thank God for the rain and to ask God for more rain next year. That must be why we're here. So they started this water ceremony. So they would gather together at the temple with their lulavs, their palm fronds, and they would all shake their palm fronds. Now what happens is the priest comes out with a pitcher, with a jar. And he, uh, as, as he comes out, everybody has their palm fronds and they're all shouting, Hoshana, Hoshana, which means Lord save us. And you ask, well, why are they shouting that? It's kind of a weird thing to shout. They're shouting that because that's what the text told them to shout. I believe you have Psalm 118. Do you have a portion of that Psalm to read? Yeah, starting verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. All right, so we have this. Uh, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. The Hebrew there is Hoshana. Hoshana, with bows in hand, the text said. Let us join in the festive procession up to the horns of the altar. Speaking of this water ceremony of Sukkot. So they stand at the temple and they have their lulavs and they shout, Hoshana. What they're asking is they're saying, God, save us. You gave us rain this last year. Give us rain this year too, so that we can have a wonderful harvest and wonderful crops. Hoshana, Hoshana. And so the priest, he walks up the ramp of the altar with this pitcher in his hand and everybody falls dead silent. And he tips the pitcher up and there's nothing in the pitcher. It's empty. And so the priest then descends down the ramp from the altar and everybody shakes their palm fronds. Hoshana! There's all this writing about how you could have heard the shouting on Sukkot from miles away in the temple. A million people all shouting, Hoshana! Hoshana! So the priest would go down to the pool of Siloam and fill up his pitcher. And then he would walk back to the temple with everybody getting worked up into a frenzy. Hoshana, Hoshana, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Give us rain for our harvest. And the priest would come back and he would go to the steps of the, the ramp of the altar and everybody would, would, would fall dead silent. And the priest would walk up the ramp of the altar and he would take his pitcher and this time he would pour it and there would be water and it would create this smoke as it lands on the altar and the flames and the fire and the smoke would represent the presence of God and everybody would cheer and celebrate. Now, what we're told in the Jesus story is we're told that uh, during the great and last day, the greatest, the last and greatest day of the feast, which is the water ceremony, Jesus goes up to the temple. And it says that he uh, cries out this, these words, uh, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and streams of living water will flow out of him. And the question is, when does he say that? My teacher taught me, and I love this theory. It's a theory that I hold. The, one of the only times he can say this and have anybody hear him 
is during what? When they're pouring out the water. When they're silent. And so if you can imagine this eerie moment where everybody's all worked up and they've just fallen dead silent and the great priest is going to pour the water and here's Jesus standing on a dove crate in the back of the temple court. Uh, if anyone is thirsty, this is, it becomes this like stunning teaching moment all of a sudden. But what Jesus says reinforces what we've been looking at here in our passages. What he says, I was shocked. Uh, I knew the passage very well, but I didn't know it well enough. Because when my rabbi taught me about it, I went, no, that's not what it says. Um, Jesus says, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me. And streams of water will flow, and I thought, from Jesus. I'm thirsty. I come to Jesus. And springs of living water, maim chaim, flow from Jesus. And my thirst is quenched. It's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. And, and streams of maim chaim will flow from within him. That means the streams of water flow from us. We are the people that are supposed to be in Gettys. And one of the things I love to do on our trip when we go to En Gedi, um, obviously we can't do this in the podcast, but it's helpful to think about. I remember my rabbi saying, uh, when you're here, you need to get a picture of you standing here at and in the, in the spring at En Gedi. And you need to take that picture home and you need to frame it and you need to give it to somebody who's been your En Gedi. And I loved that. And there have been people in my life that have received uh, pictures and Getty pictures from me. Um, and, And then Ray said, now, is there anybody that if they were given the same task would give that picture to you? And that was a convicting question to ask. Uh, We are to be people that are to be in Gettys for others in their deserts. Um, I know for me, and there have been now one or two exceptions to this. There have been one or two exceptions. But by and large, I think I've given out maybe 15 in Getty photos. It's a way that I get to say thank you to people that have been a blessing to me in my deserts. Uh, I've given out like 15 of those photos. I've only given out one or two to believers. And whenever I do this talk, I always get emails. I always get people that say it's, it's my fault. It's, uh, I'm the one that's responsible for seeing it this way. There would be Christians and believers, but I'm making assumptions and all this other stuff, which I actually think is ironic um, and funny that as I share this part of my heart, uh, it's the Christians that tell me that it's my fault for doing this wrong. Uh, I can tell you this. The only people I have ever felt comfortable with um, truly being me just being me. And the only people that have truly been in Gettys in my desert uh, have been non-believers. Um, it is funny, and funny is not the right word. It is interesting uh, how sometimes the, the, the least safe place to be is with God's people when you're going through struggling. The, the least safe place there is to be just you the unadulterated version of yourself, just who you really truly are, the last place that you can do that is with God's people because that's the place you're going to be judged. That's the place you're going to be critiqued. That's the place, the only people that I could just go in some of my hardest seasons, my darkest moments, my worst chapters of my life and just go and unplug. And they weren't going to care what I thought. They weren't going to care what I said. They weren't going to care what I did. They were just there to be my friend. 
and they were in Gettys. They were non-believers. They didn't care. They didn't care that I was a pastor. They didn't care if I was struggling. They didn't care if I used language that was a little salty. Uh, they didn't. They didn't care. They just were there to let me be me, uh, and let me process stuff. And I wish. I could do that better. I wish we as God's people could do that better. Um, And I've always just really been impacted by that lesson. But there's one more image, and it goes back to that wadi image. And these wadis, like we said, got cut by rainwater that falls. Um, And so one of the things that we end up finding, and I think we'll have a picture in the presentation, is of a wadi flood. In fact, there are even, uh, I think there's even a YouTube video or two of a wadi flood. Um, the ones that I find aren't nearly as dramatic as they often can be. Um, you'll find stories. Uh, I have a cutout of a story that was 2006, I believe, uh, where there was a couple hikers that were rappelling down into a wadi during the rain season. And uh, it was not raining where they were at. It will be raining 50 miles away. And it will flood the number one cause of death in the desert, Brent. Flooding. Yep. Isn't that crazy? That's unbelievable. Number one cause of death in the desert. Not drought, or excuse me, not thirst, not heat stroke or exhaustion, but floods. Uh, these wadi floods come out of nowhere. I was told um, as I was scouting and hiking in the desert, I was told that if uh, you're where you shouldn't be and you hear the sound of a train, it'll sound like a train is coming, you have at that point about 40 seconds to get out of the wadi which is basically just not enough time. There's no way you can get out of a wadi in 40 seconds. Um, and this wall of water is going to come crashing through this wadi. Now, the videos I can find on YouTube are from the top of the wadi, so it's not nearly as dramatic as it is once that water drops down into the wadi. Um, but you have these just walls of water that come rushing through, uh, and they're deadly for people that are inside the wadi. There's no way to escape it. That's really why you do your trips in August, right? Yeah. It's yeah, for safety. It is, honestly. <laughs> Honestly, I don't I don't dance at all near a wadi if it's even remotely close to rainy season. Um, just not the place you want to be. Uh, but one of the places it shows up is in Jesus' teaching. He talks about the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, the person who hears my words and does them uh, is or does not do them is like the man who built his house on the sand. And the rains came and the flood waters rose, it says, and his house was destroyed. The man who hears my words and does them is like the man who built his house on the rock. Uh, and the rains fell and the floodwaters rose, but his house stood firm as a wind beat against the house. Now, the words that he used there, uses there are quite interesting. Sand is what you find at the bottom of the wadi. There are two different kinds of sand in the Middle East. There's the sand of the seashore, beach sand, and then there's the sand of the desert. And the sand of the desert gathers in the bottom of the wadis because that's where the water carries the sand. So the sand sits at the bottom of the wadi, and the word for rock that Jesus used there is the word for bedrock or cliff face. So it's the top of the wadi. So what Jesus is saying here ends up taking on a whole new life. It's really not about the building material. I've even had people in construction say, well, sand's actually incredibly useful in building. You can move it. You can pack it. Um, I actually have to use sand when I build homes and and houses. Jesus' point becomes a little bit more clear. It's not about strong or weak building foundation. It's about location. Um, the foolish person that doesn't do what Jesus says is like a person who builds his home in the bottom of a wadi. You're just asking for it. Eventually, the rains are going to come, and there's no way your house is going to stand when you built it in the bottom of the wadi. But the person who hears Jesus' words and builds his house on the rock is a person who builds it at the top of the wadi where there is no danger of that being hurt. 
And you'll find this all throughout the the rest of the scriptures as well. The Hebrew scriptures talk about, uh, I was stuck in the mire. I was stuck in the mud and I was hopeless. David cries out and he says, God came and he pulled me out of the mire. He pulled me out of the mud and he rescued me and he put my feet up on the rock. Well, the mud he talks about is the mud that's found in the bottom of the wadi. And he says, I was stuck in the mud and I could hear the water coming and I knew I was a goner, but God plucked me out of the bottom of the wadi and he put me up on top of the rock face um, and took me and put me out of danger. And so these are, these are images that in the desert come alive when we know and we have the right pictures. So I think that'll wrap up our time in the desert. I had some good time in the desert via podcast. At least helped us maybe a little bit. Next step, come on the trip and experience it firsthand. Ooh, that is a good next step. Pretty good. It's a big next step. Yeah. But worth it. We'll keep that. Keep you posted if anybody wants to come and join us. Yeah. So uh, keep up with us on, on that kind of stuff. You can find Marty on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me at EIBCB. We've got a Facebook uh, page where you'll get information on that kind of stuff as well. And, of course, you can find more details about the show at BaymontDiscipleship.com. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon.